Um, so, just to introduce the three folks on this stage with me, um, I would like for each of you to tell us a little bit about how you came to work on issues related to the registry. So, Willie, can we begin with you? Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to work on issues of this? Uh, hello? You hear me? Good. Um, so, my name is, good evening everybody, my name is Willie Trent. Thanks for having me at the Playwright Horizons. Thanks for the wonderful uh, play. It was very nice and everybody on the panel, glad you guys made it. Emily and Judith, as well as you. Um, and everybody in the audience. So my name is Willie Trent. I'm here because I'm actually on the registry from Suffolk County, New York. Um, I got placed on the registry in 1998, two years after the registry, like, fervor kicked in. They're really adamant about if you got any kind of, like, situations that's even remotely relative to uh, an offense, they're going to put you on the registry. I didn't know nothing about that at the time, but I wasn't totally naive or innocent, but um, I didn't know nothing about that at the time. So I'm just give you a quick backdrop of, like, some of the dynamics that led to me being put on the registry. So when I was like, you know, rather young man, you know, I had a sexual interaction with a young lady, um, took her to a beach, you know, did some, you know, inappropriate things. She wound up getting pregnant, all right? So when she gets pregnant, she's in school, she's throwing up, she goes to the counselors, they're like, what's going on, everything all right? She's like, oh, my period's late. When she comes into the counselors, they're like, we think we got a situation here, she shouldn't be having sex. They bring in the caseworkers, social workers, and the detectives and they bring in the special victims and she's like yeah my boyfriend you know we had sex the other day whatever okay boom that's one part so they pull me in detectives pull me over Willie um last time we seen you with a young lady she's been missing so I'm like she's been missing they're like yeah we need you to come down to the detectives bureau and tell us what you know the last time you've seen her because she hasn't been you know we think she might be uh, kidnapped or something I'm like wow I'll be right there you know so I go down to the detectives barracks you know I'm in the back room so they're like, when's the last time you've seen her? So I start explaining all the details, whatever. So they're like, all right, we just need you to put that in writing, you know, and um, we'll follow up on it. So I'm like, all right, no problem. You know, so I go in there, I hope you really find her, you know, I hope everything's okay. They're like, yeah, all right, we'll, you know, just put it in writing for it. Now, mind you, I had no clue that they were like lining me up or I was lining myself up. You know, I was just like really concerned, like she's in trouble, you know. So when they're done, they're like, all right, Mr. Trim, we got good news and bad news. So I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, well, good news is she's, not really missing. The bad news, we're gonna charge you with a statutory rape. So I'm like, no, nah. you know, I'm thinking like this is a joke or whatever. They're like, no, it's no joke. You, you know, we're gonna charge you with rape. Um, you're gonna be arraigned tomorrow and um, we're gonna put it through the criminal justice system and see how it goes. So long story short, I go through the process. Uh, my family ponies up every little bit of money they got. And, you know, they're talking 12 and a half to 25 years. I'm like, no way. This has gotta be like some kind of error, a mistake, you know? So. You know, the detectives, we get a private investigator, all that good stuff, they do the homework, they're like, look, there's definitely been an incident here where there was, you know, sexual relations, but based on facts and investigation, there was no, she wasn't strong arm into the park, she wasn't uh, strangled, because they portrayed it like Hollywood narrative, like like a Grisham novel, like, you know, he drug her in a wooded area, you know, it was real good writing, you know, so I was like, arguing the writing, like it happened, but not like that, so they are like, don't worry about that, that's at least work. So anyway, long story short, I wind up um, copping out to three and a half to 12 years. I, was, I did eight years in prison. Um, that was a very lengthy eight years, very rough eight years. While within the um, Department of Corrections, um, every time they came up with a program that was supposed to be therapeutic, because you got a sex charge, they made you take it. So it was like every 90 days or six months, they came up with a new program for therapeutic needs. The prime candidate was me. Willie, you gotta take that program again. So I wound up going through all these programs, all these programs. So prison was one thing. You know, but I never had a reality of what it was gonna be like when you got out. You know what I mean? So in prison, we're thinking like we're gonna do all these programs, we're gonna come home, we're gonna get a job, we're gonna reintegrate back to society. 
no big deal, you know what I mean? So when it comes time to get out, whatever, I'm like, I'm gonna go to school and I'm gonna just work, you know what I mean? And I'll just, you know, slowly put my life back together. So when I get out, you know, I gotta go through school, I go to parole, similar to the movie. In order for me to go to school, I gotta get evaluated. So I gotta go in front of a panel board, a psychiatric board, um, forensic experts, and they sit me down and they ask me questions to see if I pose a threat or I'm really a predator or whatever. You know, they actually hook me up to the machine, something like she said. They hook me up to the machine, they do the uh, lie detector test to make sure that I'm not lying and trying to fool the whole Department of Corrections or whatever. So I basically recant basically what I just told you guys. So they're like, well, we don't really see him as being a predator. You know what I mean? And um, we think that he's suitable to go to college without posing a threat to the campus or whatever. So I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. So in order for me to go, I got to go. They're like, what do you want to go to school for? I'm like, I want to go to school to be a counselor. You know, I want to make sure that I can probably use my lifestyle, be a narrative and a voice to change and an aid and assist others in not going down a similar path. Plus, I've been in and out of prison for a long time. So I'm the ideal candidate. That's what I'm saying in my mind. So they're like, all right, no problem, Willie. You know, I think you could be a suitable counselor to help others prevent from going down the road that you went down. So I go, I do the coursework. I went to go for a credential act called substance abuse counselor. I went to go for a case act. They was like, that's probably the easiest one you can get into, get your KSAC work, and then you can go work on some higher degrees. I'm like, all right, no problem. So I do the coursework. It comes time for me to get evaluated. I submit the paperwork in, the coursework in. Albany denies the license. They say you're unethical. You know, there's no way you could be a counselor. So I'm like, what do you mean I can't be a counselor? You know, like there's an older population of criminals as well. It's not just, uh, you know, there's a whole different spectrums of counseling. You know, they're like, nah. If you're under registry, you can't be a counselor. So I'm like, that just doesn't make sense to me. But I'm like, all right, so I'll go get a degree. No worry, you know what I mean? Don't worry about the KSAC certification. I'll go get a real formal degree. So when I go to college and I apply, at this particular time, they had on application number 10, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Um, and when I put, have you ever been convicted of a felony, they said, all right, what is the felony? Once I told them what the felony was, like the whole dynamics of the room changed. Like people were like, hold on, wait here. And then a whole different group of people will come in. And they're like, Willie, we need you to write a five-page essay. You have to detail your criminal history in your own words. You have to bring in your rap sheet. If you're on parole, probation, we need to speak to your parole, probation officer. So I'm like, all right, no problem. You know what I mean? So I submit that paperwork. After submitting that paperwork, they're like, denied. Denied admission. So I'm like, all right, what am I denied for? They're like, well, we don't think you, you pose a threat to the safety of the campus. So I'm like, all right. So now this is 2009, right? So two years later, 2011, I reapply. Denied. Same thing again. Denied. So I'm like, am I ever going to be able to be admitted? You know, I'm starting to question myself. So I'm talking to people I know. I'm like, they keep denying me access to college. They're like, well, Willie, maybe you're not presenting properly. Maybe your presentation is a little too aggressive. Maybe we got to tweak some things. I'm like, it's possible, but I really don't think that's the case, you know? So 2013 comes. I apply. Denied. This is six years now trying to get into college. Now, I'm not just talking one college. I'm talking multiple colleges. I go here, go there, go there, go through the process. They're denying me. So I contact a lawyer whom I knew for a while. I said, you know, Liz, they're denying me access to college. I don't think I can get into college in Suffolk County. She's like, no, Willie, you can get in. I'm like, I'm telling you, I don't think I can get in. So I'm like, do you know anybody ever got in on the registry? She's like, not in particular. I'm like, you're not going to let you in on the registry in Suffolk County, right? So I said, no problem. You know what I'll do? I'll go to college in the city, because I'm not going to keep wasting time in Suffolk County. I'll go to the city, because the city is more progressive. They got more agencies. I'll go to the city. So I come to like a workshop, whatever, like an educational workshop. I'm networking with people. How you doing? Which school you're in? I'm in this school, I'm in that school. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to the city. So I applied to the city. Same exact thing, denied. 
So I'm like, hold on. This, I can't be the only guy getting denied. Going, it got to be somebody in these colleges on the register. And there's no way you're telling me I'm just getting denied, denied, denied. Now, we're looking like six years later. And they deny you for two years at a time. It's not like you're getting denied for two months. Reapply in two years, like a parole board. You know what I mean? So now I'm talking to more people. And they're like, Willie, this is looking like really strange. You know? So I actually go to the Columbia University. They had a, a conference there, like a little workshop. And I'm talking to people like the students that's in the social work program, and they're like, well, what do you go to school for? You know, I'm like, uh, I really don't go to school. They're like, what do you mean you don't go to school? I'm like, they don't want to let me in school. They're like, nah, you're kidding me, Willie. There's a school that can let you in. I'm like, all right, look, so you guys aid and assist me. Go along with me. We'll take a trip to some of these colleges. You could actually see the process with me, and we'll see what the results are. So they're like, sure, Willie, no problem. So I get like some real smart students, that the A-class students, you know, a little a black, a white, and Hispanic, so we get all diversities. So we can't even try to say it's an ethnic thing, you know what I mean? And they all go in with me. So they, we go to, to uh, we go to LaGuardia. So we go to LaGuardia or whatever, and they're like, uh, we really, we really don't want you in so many ways, but we'll give you a shot. So I'm like, wow, it was maybe it was me, it's, you know? So when I get in, I'm doing this college or whatever. It's almost like this time, time for finals. I'm in the class, and I see a whole bunch of like people in suits and ties waiting outside the room. And I'm like, they're like, Mr. Trent? And I'm like, did I do something? I did a crime or something, copped up or whatever? So like, we need to see. So when I step out, they're like, we need to go to the office right now. So it's like for like, they're with the safety and the security and all of this. They take me upstairs. They're like, well, you have to leave the campus right now. So I'm like, well, what will it happen or whatever? They're like, um, your criminal history popped up, and we have a daycare on the campus. So now I've already been on the campus for like three months. It's going to the finals now. I'm like, a couple weeks, school's over. So I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, no, we're not kidding. You have to leave today. So I'm like, so I called everybody to help that went with me. I'm like, yo, they kicked me off the campus. They're like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, no, I'm not kidding you. I got to leave like right now. And I'm in the middle of finals, so I'm, I'm going to lose all my schoolwork, whatever. So they're like, we're going to go up there with you, Willie. We're going to do a hearing, and we're going to see what's going on. We get the hearing, we talk to the vice president, whatever. He's like, look, you're not welcome here, Mr. Trent. You know what I mean? We don't know how you even got past the process. I wasn't even supposed to get past the process. I was supposed to get caught right at the door, like I had been getting caught previously. You know what I mean? So I'm like, all right. So now I'm like really getting disc you know, disgruntled or whatever. But I'm still going to colleges. I'm still applying. I'm still applying. Then it dawned on me that some of the people I was with, I was like, why don't you try to get me in your college? You know? So they was like, well, we can't get you in Columbia. Let's see if we can try to get you somewhere else, you know what I mean? So they wound up working, and they aided and assist me in getting into um, to John Jay University or whatever. So I got into John Jay, same thing. They denied me initially, and then I happened to meet with the um, – I said, listen, you deny me. Just let me speak to somebody that got some power. Because not no disrespect, but I'm not able to speak to nobody that got the power to really decide. And the people that I'm speaking to, they're empathetic, but they don't have the power to really get me into campus. So could you please give me an interview with whoever has the power, like the head of security or safety? And then if he kicks me out, I'm going to just go off in the shadows. I'll probably just leave it alone. Whatever. So he agreed to it. He was like, you know, the head of safety said he's willing to give you an opportunity to speak with him. So when I go speak to him, he's an ex-FBI guy. He's like, Willie, what's your story? That's the first question he asked, what's your story? And I told him, similar to what I told him, sir, they don't want to let me in college. I did everything I can. They don't want to let me in. You know, my crime's over 20 years old. They're not letting me in. And he's like, all right, I'm going to let you in. And just like that, I got in. And uh, since being in, I've been coming around all the places like this, going on panels, talking, and just bringing awareness to individuals on the registry and hoping to get some of you guys to enlist in the struggle to prevent myself and others from going through similar things like that in the future. So, Thank you, Willie. Thank you so much.
how did each of you come to work on issues of the registry, if you'd like to share? And Willie, just make sure you speak into the mic so everybody can hear you. Oh, yeah. you know, right. We could hear you. Um, <laughs> um, I don't have as uh, compelling a story <laughs> as Willie has. Um, I started to work on these issues uh, a long time ago. I, I, as a feminist, starting in the 1970s, that's how old I am, um, I was and continue to be uh, concerned about two things. On one side, I'm, I'm concerned about sexual violence and harm to anyone. And on the other, I care about freedom and pleasure and justice. And these things together, uh, and also, you know, about children, um, the well-being, I guess, of, of all of us. Um, and so uh, I did a lot of work around those kinds of issues. In 2002, I wrote a book called Harmful to Minors, The Perils of Protecting Children from Sex, which argued that the ways in which we try to protect young people from sex, such as statutory rape law, which criminalizes often consensual teen sex, the bad sex education that we have, um, there are things, ch little children are accused of being molesters. Anyway, a lot of ways in which uh, denial of abortion, in which instead of protecting kids, we actually harm them. And when I wrote that book, I also wrote about the hysteria, which I do think is an hysteria, around the idea that somehow the world is crawling with pedophilic malefactors who are going to snatch your child off the street, um, the legacy of which is what you see here. Uh, so I heard from a lot of people in the registry um, during that time and began to, um, you know, talk with them and feel compassion for them. Um, and I'll talk later about, more recently I've been involved in uh, restorative justice, which is a non-carceral response. But also uh, with Emily, um, I'm the, on the board of the National Center for Reason and Justice, which uh, was founded in 1990-something maybe. Um, to try to get people who had been uh, accused and convicted on, in the panic about daycare, satanic ritual abuse in the 1980s, and some people were still in prison, some are still in prison. Um, so that's how that organization started, and eventually we began to work more about sex offense policy and looking for rational and effective child protective policies. So Emily and I have been on that. that board together for a long time. Thank you. Um, so I'm Emily Horowitz. I'm a sociologist. Um, it's interesting, whenever I'm on a panel about sex offense issues, they always are like, why do you do this? How did you find out about this? And on panels about anything else in criminology or sociology, they never ask me that. Even one time I gave a talk about serial killers, and they were never like, why are you interested in serial killers? Because they just assume that's like super interesting. Um, but they always want to know, like, you know, do you have a personal connection? Um, but I work on this because I met somebody who was on the registry, and I was horrified by what he experienced. In particular, um, he shared with me he had spent 13 years in prison, and he was trying to find a religious congregation to be part of. And he um, had been recent, recently released, and religion had really helped him a lot in prison, and he kept getting kicked out of religious congregations, Jewish religious congregations. He was asked to leave, 
and it really shocked me because I always thought isn't religion like all about redemption and it's sort of like once you learn a little bit about what life is like on the registry you cannot look away it's so horrifying and I my book a lot of it is about you know people on the registry have low recidivism rates um, it doesn't protect anyone 95% of sexual harm occurs within families and non-strangers but this book that's coming out very soon is really much more about the cruelty and mean-spiritedness and horror that people on registries face and what they live under. And it's gotten a lot worse. My, m the book I published in 2015 was much more optimistic and talked about some potential reforms and ways you know we could roll back this endless punishment that's just cruel and horrible. Um, and I'd kind of thought maybe I'd write about something else, but after that book, like Judith, I got lots and lots of calls from people directly impacted by these laws and their family, and it's, they're just crazy, they're useless, they're mean-spirited, they're cruel, and nobody uh, will listen. There's so much um, hysteria. People, J Judith and I talk about this, like our leftist friends, feminists, it's very, very hard to make people think rationally about this issue. And I love this play because I think it's a really good effort to humanize. I mean, it's so horrible to use the word humanize, like they're humans, but you have to humanize people who've made mistakes and done bad things. And really, I struggle with how to communicate to people why are sexual mistakes or crimes that are sexual so much worse and treated so much more differently. Why can't we forgive and accept that people can be punished and change. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you, for that introduction. Um, I'd like to talk about the registry in practice for a few moments, um, sort of the theory versus the practice of how the sex offense registry is working. Um, so Emily, you have, as you mentioned, a book, uh, Protecting Our Kids, How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing Us. I'm wondering, of course, you know, for those who have seen Downstate, the play does cover some of this, but I'd love to hear from you directly based on your research and your work. How is the registry meant to function? And how does it work sort of in a basic sense, if you can give us that overview? And then how is the registry failing to protect children and why? Well, registries originated as a way to police um, gay sex. They started in the 40s and they would list men who are arrested for consent consensual adult relations um, and to keep track of them. And then in the 90s, this is like really fast, but then like in the 90s, <laughs> feminists kind of work together with um, tough on crime, law and order politicians to promote the idea that people who committed sex offenses should be listed on a registry. Originally it was law enforcement only, like a private registry, uh, based on the myth that people who commit these offenses have quote unquote frightening and high rates of recidivism. They can't stop, they won't stop, they're, they're use the word like quote unquote predatory, they're animals, they're not human, they're, they're driven by this so they need to be listed on a registry. And they were never intended to work as anything but to punish, stigmatize, and banish. Um, the advocates for them in the 90s included like the parents of murdered children, who many of these laws are named for like white middle class, very young children who are abducted and murdered, often, most often not by people on registries, but this fear gripped the public that they were being abducted by people who uh, had committed sex offenses in the past by strangers, and they took off 
and, and it's a bipartisan love affair with registries. Bill Clinton signed Megan's law. Democrats and Republicans unite and come together over registries. Um, feminists are very divided. In recent years, Judith's book, she can tell you more about that, but she talks about feminist anti-carceral efforts to push back against registries, but many feminists are advocate very strongly for registries and these laws. So they never came about because of anything rational. They were political, they were emotional, they were a way for politicians to say, we care about the children and we hate quote unquote sex offenders. Um, and everybody hates sex offenders, so it's really quote unquote sex offenders. I can't say sex offenders. Um, people convicted of sex offenses. Um, and it fails to protect children because most sexual harm occurs within families, among people who know one another. Very few children are sexually abducted by strangers or harmed uh, by strangers. Stranger danger is largely a myth, and there's been a lot written about that, but it kind of um, drives our whole, much of our culture and the way we raise our children. So they were never, they were never good faith efforts to kind of protect children. They came out of fear and hysteria and uh, political uh, goals. Yeah, thank you. And, and to elaborate on this, Judith, you know, we, we've spoken about the stated goal of the registry and of carceral systems versus the actual goals of the registry and of carceral systems. Um, so can you speak a little bit about what is the registry effective in accomplishing and, and towards whom, and if, if possible to also put that in context with other carceral systems? Um, well, I think this play really shows very dramatically, it's a drama, uh, the ways in which not only, as Emily was saying, registries and all of the restrictions that go with them, which these men are under, um, don't protect anyone, they also do not do what we would hope a rational justice system would do, which would be to hold people accountable for the wrongs that they do and the harm that they do. The criminal justice system, not just around sex crimes, but around all crimes, uh, really defeats accountability. And it also defeats the ability for the harmed person to, um, to repair the harm, to get something back, and to heal from the harm. Um, when you're a criminal defendant, your job is to say you didn't do it, even if you did do it. And your defense attorney's job is to say, you didn't do it, or if you did it, it wasn't really your fault, and someone else was involved, and you know you didn't do it as badly as you, you know. Um, so, and then what you see in this play really is how punishment continues, makes people feel bitter, frustrated, angry. They can never get on with life. They can't uh, atone for their sins and then go forward and do good in the world, as Willie's talking about doing. So it doesn't. It doesn't hold anyone accountable. It doesn't keep anyone safer. And the other thing it doesn't do is that it's not really satisfying for the victim. Uh, many people, I mean, you see, like, a, a cop kills a young black man, and his family is there at the press conference, and they're saying, we want this guy to go to prison for life. Uh, some families say they don't. I mean, some families say they don't want capital punishment, for instance. Um, but at that moment, when a very terrible, terrible thing happens to you, you're first, and when you're grieving, often your first reaction is rage. And so that's the moment at which we sentence a person and send the persons to prison. 
Um, and as Emily was suggesting, prison sentences have gotten longer and longer and longer, particularly for sex crimes. Um, but many people find as time goes by that the fact that this person is locked up for a long time is really not healing them. And you see this victim who has just stewed in this his whole, his whole life and he's, he's, you know, he's broken by it and wants to break others uh, for it. So uh, I can talk later about restorative justice practices which really do hold people accountable, allow the victim to speak about the harms that have been done to her or him and then also find a way to repair the harm and then to be able to re-embrace that person back into the community so that they can do good with their lives rather than continue to live you know, in isolation, banishment, frustration, and rage. Yes, thank you. And if you, just to this piece on restorative justice, the previous panel that we held on November 19th spoke a lot about transformative justice and restorative justice models um, for healing and accountability and processes that are actively being pursued by many, many organizations. So if you're interested, we'll be releasing uh, an audio recording of that panel soon. And um, there's a lot of information about some of the organizations that are doing this restorative justice and transformative justice healing work also in a, um, in a page in the lobby. Um, so Willie, I'd love to turn to you on this question of, of theory versus practice as well. Um, can you speak a little bit about how, you know, in your perspective, the theoretical level of the registry is playing out in practice in your own and in those you know's lived experiences? All right, so on my own personal level, I think, you know, being on the registry, being in the sober houses, similar to like in the documentary or the, the play, um, there's zero tolerance with law enforcement, all right? So in the play, it was like a dialogue between the parole officer and the individual. In real life, it, it doesn't work out that way at all. So either you sign the condition or you go back to prison. Parole is a privilege. You have no right to parole. And they make that very clear, you know. So in my own particular case, you know, no matter what, on the registry, Suffolk County, you're getting a GPS. They're putting a big, doofy GPS on you, and somehow it conveniently goes off at all the wrong times, like when you're in class, when you're in social service, in a place, something like this. All of a sudden, you get a beep, 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 and everybody's looking around. You can't control it. They control it manually from wherever they are. You know, it's a way of humiliating you and shaming you. You know, so then after it beeps, then all of a sudden it vibrates like another minute. So everybody's like looking around, and you're like, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? And I'm sure parole, wherever they are, laughing, having a kick, because they can zoom right in on the aerial and tell exactly where you are. So it's not like it's an accident. All right. So that's one thing. And another thing I noticed that, like, far as school, in theory, everybody's entitled to an education. In theory. Um, I've spoken with countless students as well as faculty, and the reality is that I came up with the term pretty much mister. If you have a murder or a rape, they don't really want you on the campus, all right? I spoke to countless people that didn't even know I was on a sex offender registry, so they're very free talking to, to me and like, you know, and then I finally tell them like, wow, you know, like I'm actually on a registry. They're like, why will you? Like, yeah, you know what I mean? So it's like, um, the theory is that everybody's entitled to an education. The practicality is they got so many levels and barriers that dissuade you if you have a murder or a rape, that it's gonna more than likely, you know, prevent the average person from going through. Me, I'm just persistent, and I kind of like keep getting knocked down and keep coming back. Like maybe it's something I'm doing wrong, but it is designed systemically for you to fail. As um, far as the housing in, in Long Island, they created a housing law. So once they realized that certain uh, landlords was willing to rent the people on the registry, they started tackling, uh, focusing on those landlords, writing them citations, high grass. Um, vehicle inappropriately parked. They basically was harassing the landlords 
that was housing people on the registry. You know, and then they came up with something where they started just basically putting rocks in vacant spaces, Girl Scout, Boy Scout, and they started naming them parks, right? And they did that as a way of social ordinance to zone the registries, the registrants out of existence. That's what they said publicly. You know, it's designed to zone the registrants out of existence. Like we're gonna just go from a, a big blob, get smaller, smaller, and eventually just dissipate like a gas. They got, you know what I mean? And I'm like, how are they able to have these kind of discussions publicly? You know, and in a room with people who are highly educated. We're not talking about laymen. We're talking about people as clinicians who teach the class, who teach these workshops, and they're going along with this. So it's not really about the research. You know, from my experience, the research doesn't play much into this. It's more about just being tough on crime. And many people say, Willie, if you can give me something to give my constituents, I can make some change. I'm like, how could you really package that in a way that's politically acceptable? I don't know how to do it, you know what I mean? And if somebody can do it, I think it'll be some changes, but as far as the facts, they don't really play too much into the equation from my experience. Thank you. Um, the just to, to look forward, to pivot the conversation a little bit towards looking forward, um, the sex offense registry is harming those who live on the registry, as downstate shows, as this play shows, if you've seen it, as this conversation has continued to, to demonstrate. Um, it's also ineffective, point blank, at protecting children, as so much of all, all three of your work is discussing. Um, and you know the binary between quote unquote sex offender and victim is is also a false one, right? As we also see in the play downstate, um, you know we know that statistically, and we just spoke about this on the previous panel as well, that a very high number of individuals convicted of sex crimes are themselves also survivors of sexual violence. Um, just if you look at the numbers of that. Um, so what do we, as a society, and specifically policymakers, need to address in order to actually prevent? true threats to child safety. Um, Emily, Judith, do either one of you want to begin? Um, I think we should start by having housing for everyone, health care for everyone, good educations for everyone, everyone, in including adults, good sex education, um, nutrition, all the rest of it. Because people who are in satisfactory situations uh, do, do not usually do violence to other people. Um, the other th thing I think we need to do, I mean, you know, one thing that Emily also suggested is that um, even people who are involved in criminal legal reform also exclude people who are on the sex offender registry or people sex offenders so that whenever there is a reform that's up for, uh, you know, for a vote or something, generally the sex offender is traded away as a pawn right in the beginning so that we will have this reform um, except if you have a sex offense. Um, so I, I mean, one of the things people always say is well, we should give people therapy. Um, and I also think probably everyone needs therapy and certainly anyone who's gone to prison needs therapy right. because thera prison itself is a traumatic and uh, violence-producing, um, humiliating, and horrible, horrible experience for anyone. So um, much of sex offenses are not, um, there's no, there is no psychological um, profile of a person who abuses ch children. It's sometimes a crime of convenience. It's sometimes a crime of, uh, of 
patriarchy, that is, that the child is considered to be yours to use. Um, this is not exactly a psychopathology, it's a sociopathology. So that's another thing that we could do, is that we could actually respect children, respect their sexuality, respect their boundaries, uh, treat them like human beings, uh, and, and also condemn those who do not, such as fundamentalist religions. I mean, the very same people who are pushing the sex offender registry also have ideologies and practices that make life difficult for children. So, um, so these are none of the <laughs> these are none of the solutions that are ever given for what should we do about sex offenses. Oh, and the last one I would say is there are many different feminisms, but I do think that actually feminism, which says that people have their own bodies and we still have it in spite of Dobbs, uh, that we have a right to our own bodies, to autonomy of our own bodies. Everyone does. Every human being does that feminism has actually, I think, had an effect in reducing sexual crime. Um, not just because people will, will reveal when they have been harmed themselves, but because it is less um, acceptable to do it. I mean, when I was a kid, you'd get on the subway and someone would expose himself to you. I mean, it happened every day when you were 12 years old. It doesn't happen anymore because it is no longer acceptable. So I, I think these are they're social, economic and political responses uh, to, that's a way, for, I think, to prevent sexual harm. Yeah, I mean, like the Crimes Against Children Resource Center, which is kind of like where they keep all the data on uh, documented cases of child sexual abuse, found that rates of child sexual abuse started falling dramatically before the registry in the early 90s, partly as a result of feminist movements and awareness and and a cultural change that took child sexual abuse as a serious problem. Um, children were believed and it, it, it was elevated as a serious social issue and not a myth. And also uh, as a result of increasing economic prosperity. And we know when unemployment grows up and poverty goes up, rates of all forms of child abuse. I mean, the most prevalent form of child abuse is physical abuse and neglect and maltreatment. Child sexual abuse is a very small portion of that. So I always get a little irked when people are like, what do you think about child safety? I'm like, well, child sexual abuse, there's a lot of people working on that. There's a ton of money and resources devoted to that. Not so much to physical abuse, maltreatment, and neglect, which are all correlated with poverty. So, yeah, thank you. I mean, I think the, there's a you know, language here I'd like to bring in of abolition, which is, uh, uh, you know, in its terminology, we hear it, some folks might hear it as a, an abolishing of a system, which it is, right? It's, it's about abolishing policing, prisons, carceral systems, registries. Um, but it's also about building something, and it's about creating, and it's a, it's, a, it's a use of our imaginations to imagine what resources could our society thrive if they had access to, and could our people thrive if they had access to. And so I think abolition as, a, as, a, as an organizing tool, as a vision, as a movement, uh, is an answer not just to child sexual abuse, but to other systems of child of child violence and adult violence and all types of quote unquote what we call what we label as crime in this country. So I just wanted to bring that that language in here. Um, let's pivot to speaking a little bit specifically about downstate and about the play um, whose home we are sitting in as we speak. Um, Willie, I'd love to start with you on this. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about how the stories demonstrated in downstate? relate to some of the realities you've encountered of people living on the registry? And are there any other realities you'd like to add in to the fold in terms of, of obstacles? Yeah, so I think the play was a really good play. Um, it, it really um, 
captured a lot of the real dynamics that exist with individuals on the registry. Um, even looking at the in, like the house, the sober house, they have weights in the living room. You know, that's not that's something that a guy who spent a lot of prison would do. Would think nothing's wrong with that. You know, like having a bed dumbbells right in the living room. That's not really what most people do. You know, in society, they usually go to the gym or something like that. But a guy who's did, or you know, a couple seven eight years in prison has no problem turning the middle of the living room into a gym. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, when I was looking at that, I was like, wow, you know. Because I was one of the people who thought like that when I first came out. Like, yo, I, I don't got no money for a gym. Maybe I'll just get one of those little cheap gyms and just set it up right here. So when I saw that, I was like, wow. You know, now I look back and you just really see how crazy that looks. You know what I mean? To have like a, a dumbbell right in the middle of the living room or whatever. Um, and then he also mentioned like when he was talking about the parole, and she was like, well, you know, you can't go to the IGA no more. You know what I mean? Because they've uh, restricted the amount of travel time. They've expanded it. So it went from whatever the feats were to 2,500. And they're like, IGA is off limits now, you know? So in Suffolk County, that was really real. Like daily, they would just modify how far you can go because people were putting rocks in the ground. They were like, this is Hamlet Park now. It's like, this is a weeded area, you know? But now it's Hamlet Park because the Girl Scout and Boy Scouts clean that area up. They put a rock with glitter on it. So now it's a park, you know? So I, that's really something that was happening. And far as the travel, they go by as the crow flies. So it doesn't even have nothing to do with the highway. You know, so you're like, well, hold on, what do you mean? Like, we can't, that's more than a mile away. It's like two miles away. They're like, no, because as the crow flies, as if we are riding around in jets, you know, we, you can't go there. And, you know, when you start seeing some of that stuff really play out, on some level, you'd be like, this has got to be a joke. You know what I mean? Like, how could this actually be passing? And legally passing with like law enforcement, social workers, people actually doing press conferences saying like, well, this is a good law. You know what I mean? So I just think that, um, you know, far as like, you know, like a lot of things that we're talking about in the play, like even with the lady, the, the angry wife. I've seen the angry wife countless times in real life that her husband can't do nothing wrong. Like the lady was talking about, you know, here's the $100 for your broken lamp. I've really seen those people in real life come to parole. You know, and sometimes Julie is the individual where the wife is just like the commanding factor in the relationship. And she talks as if she knows everything about the guy, she knows everything about parole, and she's arguing, ah, and these people really do exist. And it's like, wow, he's gonna get arrested because she's talking like that, you know what I mean? So that was another thing that I noticed. So overall, I just think like, you know, even a black guy, he was overly caring. And in the in in sober houses, those kind of relationships do happen. There's an older guy in there, you know, and just people start taking a liking to him like a grandfather figure. And people do become protective of him, you know what I mean? So if somebody comes there, like the black guy would look out, like, is everything all right? That happens in real life, you know what I mean? So I was like, that's why I asked her in the back. I was like, who did this? He's like, you did a really good job, you know? So <laughs> I think it was a good job overall. <laughs> um, Emily, do you want to add anything in terms of other obstacles or how these stories relate to the folks you've worked with and met? They want to go to the grocery store. They can't go to the grocery store. They're harassed. They want them out of the house. They can't go here. They can't go there. They're just beat down at every single moment. Um, they can't catch a break. I mean, there's tons of obstacles with housing, with employment. It's so hard to get a job if you're on the registry. It's so hard to find housing. It's so hard to do anything. You can't even traveling within the United States. You can't even go to another state. And they hit on that, which I thought was really great. Um, and the other thing that that I think really comes through is that you're so isolated because people on the registry are rejected by friends, families, and social networks. So 
um, there's a huge feeling of, or huge reality of social isolation and banishment. You're just throwing people in the garbage and you don't think their lives matter because they did something that you're judging them as crossing some line and, and, and it's the cruelty and the pain of their existence. It's not uh, that unsurprising that the guy takes his life when he realizes he's gonna go back. Thank you. Do you want to add anything to that, Judith? I would. Well, one thing there's a there's a factual inaccuracy in it. One is is that the guy says that civil commitment is voluntary. Civil commitment is uh, after a person has done his time and comes out of prison, um, the state can hire a psychologist to. Uh, there's a, a in 20 states, a category called sexually violent predator. It, not recognized by any established psychological or psychiatric association, but um, it's a person who is supposedly predisposed, has a psychological abnormality that will predispose him to committing another sexual crime. And the symptom is that he has committed a sexual crime in the past. And if you are determined to be a sexually violent predator, you can be locked, you can be detained in a civil commitment uh, facility, a supposedly therapeutic facility forever. I mean, there is no, this is like prison except without a release date. Um, it is preventive detention. It is detention for an offense that has not yet happened. The oldest right we have, a civil right, is to not be uh, detained for a crime you have not yet committed. So, um, and while the person is given therapy over and over and over, as Willie uh, experienced, the person is also considered to be incurable, so therefore uh, he'll never be let out. And in many of these places, you don't get out except, you know, feet first. So that's, that's one thing that was wrong about it. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me that about the play is that the least, um, really the, the least sympathetic character is, the, uh, is the, the person who's been harmed, the victim, Andy, and his wife. Um, and uh, I went and read a bunch of reviews and the comments, people's comments about, uh, about the play. And it was interesting, though not too surprising to me, that the majority of the comments were, um, we should not, this play should not exist trying to, uh, we shouldn't be sympathetic to these people because they have done the worst thing that can possibly be done. Um, and, and furthermore, that questioning when D questions, you know, does he have a foreskin, that that is just, you know, uh, beyond the pale, should not have been done because the victim is always telling the truth. Um, so uh, I think what Norris tried to do here is to, you know, to turn this thing upside down. Um, but at the same time, I don't know whether it works, you know, because I think that people continue to feel that this is the worst thing that you could possibly do to anyone. Uh, we feel this way about sex on both ends. It's the most important thing if it's good, and it's the most harmful thing if it's bad. Um, and it's a separate category from every other thing that we do as, as people. So um, I hope that, uh, that the play complicates the situation. I actually don't think, I think that Andy, uh, I said this when we were talking about it before, that um, he tells the story in a particularly historic way. That is, it is in the context of a particular moment in history. Um, if this had happened to him earlier than it did, 
or even when it did, uh, he might have had the reaction that Dee had to the trauma in his childhood, which is terrible things happen to children, and we have to grow up and be resilient and get past it and try to have a life. Um, but the story, the idea that any kind of sexual assault or sexual aggression against a child is permanently, uh, permanently traumatic, permanently destructive of the person, you know, this man is unable, he says, to have a life. Um, and that is, many people do have, you know, lasting trauma for, from a lot of things. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness, but that every single aggression by an adult upon a child, like, I think it's actually normative that little girls are touched by, men, by adult men, frankly. I mean, it happened to me as a child. I do not think this is a good thing, but I think that we, many of us do, through therapy, through living, through having other experiences, through having love in our lives, get past it. So, so it's just good to know that this, that neither of these is the truth. Neither the story of the men on the registry nor Andy's story is the truth. And that's another thing that restorative justice tries to do is just to say that we each have our own truths and we have to live with each other with those truths. We have to listen to each other. Um, it's, or if a child says, you know, it wasn't that bad, we maybe listen to that as well. So, um, so that I, I, as I said, I don't. I, it's not a didactic play, which is good, <laughs> um, but I don't know whether its principal sympathies will be, t you know, felt by the audience, by audiences. Yeah, I mean, what I'm what I'm also hearing and what you're saying is is agency and body autonomy across the board, always for everyone, including children, yeah. right? Like agency, your voice, centering your experience, whatever that might be. I mean, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I'm saying that, but I'm also saying that, uh, so that's the good part of, of our modern understanding of child sexual abuse, is that every child has a right, you know, even not to just like be touched by strangers on the head, you know, it just drives me crazy when people are petting children that they don't know. Um, that every child has a right to his or her own body, their own body. Um, but also that the flagrant, you know, spectacular trauma that this man describes because he was touched twice inappropriately by his piano teacher uh, is also the story that we tell now, that this is the worst thing that could happen to a child. And also that it is an unalloyed bad experience, whereas this relationship with the piano teacher was in some ways a good relationship and in other ways a terrible relationship, and both of those things can be true. The piano teacher can care about the child and also aggress against the child, against the child's, without the child's consent. So, and I think anybody who's been a victim of child sexual abuse in a family understands that very deeply, like you might really love your father even though he's doing horrible things to you. And so, those are the kinds of complications that are allowed in a restorative kind of context that are just impossible within the binary, you know, the guilty person, the innocent person, the, the, the perpetrator and the victim. The the, our system doesn't allow for the complications of what is a very, very complicated situation yeah. almost always. Thank you. 
Some, something I'll also add in here is, is a piece that was incredibly illuminating to me from our last panel, which is also about the carceral systems as we have them and the criminal justice system uh, is not a preventative system. It is a reactive system, right? It, 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 pr it, pr it is predicated on the fact, mandatory reporting, the registry, prisons are predicated on the fact that harm has already occurred. A child has already been harmed. That is not a preventative model for preventing future harm, right? And so if we're In talking- In fact, it, it perpetrates it harm. Perpetrates harm, it right. It perpetrates violence like upon people who are incarcerated who, and after their incarceration. Right, and so yeah. it's, it's important to, to understand that when we're talking about prevention, these systems that are commonly labeled in public society as like, oh, the registry is there to prevent children from being harmed. The registry is actually predicated on children already having been harmed. Um, and so it's really important to understand preventative versus reactive models in this, in this conversation. And I think um, what is the challenging and exciting thing about a play and about art is that it can invite us to hold simultaneously truths at the same time as, as Judith is describing. And that's also what in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, restorative justice processes ask us to do, is to hold simultaneous truths. And so for that reason, I, I really appreciate this conversation about um, holding dual and, and often paradoxical realities simultaneously. So thank you. Yes, please. Just to add on to what, um, what you said with the civil confinement, I just want everybody to know civil confinement is not civil. They're actually in prison. All right, so they're saying it's civil confinement as if they're in society. Civil confinement is actually within the Department of Corrections. That's a prison outside of a prison, but it's behind barbed wire gate. It's, it's patrolled by correctional officers. They cannot go home. They cannot order fast food. They're in prison. So it's nothing civil about it. Just wanted to add. Thank you. Um, at this point, I'm going to turn over to my cell phone where I have some of your Q&A questions. Um, so we'll turn over to some of those. Um, if you haven't submitted a question and you'd like to, once again, there's a QR code on the back of your program. So you can scan that with your camera and put a question in and it may end up in my, in my cell phone. All right. Um, so we'll begin here. Uh, in what way do you think we can differentiate serial offenders and one-time offenders within the registry? Is there a realistic way of abolishing the registry while accounting for victim advocacy? I can answer that. Please. I mean, we don't need a registry. If you commit a second offense, you will get the book thrown at you. I mean, when you're arrested and convicted of a sex offense, you go to prison, you have to get through supervision, and if you ever offend again, you will go away for that. The registry doesn't, nobody, the registry does not prevent any sex offenses. So even if somebody is a quote unquote serial offender, they're not gonna be running around the streets. If you offend again, I've never met anybody who's had a second sex offense who hasn't gotten decades in response. Our criminal justice system is really good at punishment. We don't need a registry. <clears throat> Thank you. Do either of you want to respond to that question as well? That's great. Great. We'll leave it there. Um, for any of you, at this time, is there a way to be removed from the registry? Well, there is a way, in theory, to be removed from the registry. Um, so in theory, you can petition. Um, first, you got to get a certificate of good conduct, what they would advise. You don't have to. Um, I'm actually in the process. It's been not. So it's supposed to be within 45 days they're supposed to respond. So I'm going on like five months, no answer. All right, so you, you submit a packet, um, you submit it to the Department of Criminal Justice or whatever, they give you the certificate of good conduct or deny you. Once you get that, this is the ideal way. You could do it another way though. So then you petition to the courts. You say, these are the reasons why I think I deserve to be, first you gotta go with downward departure. So you can't just come right off. So if you're a three, you could depart to a two. If you're a two, you could depart to a one. 
and then a one you could depart totally off the registry after 20 years. What so, uh, Willie's referring to these tiers that are supposed to be about risk. So a tier three is a person who's presumed to be at the most risky to others. Right. Okay. Thanks for telling that. Yeah. So yeah, I know. Number two. So so that's exactly like uh, Judy said. There's a tier system. Three is a predator. Two is moderate. One is low risk. All right. But there's you know it's all discretionary. It's based on how the report's written, who reviews it. It's not you know real empirical data. They can override it, make you up higher risk. They can downgrade and make you a lower risk. So that's discretionary. So after you do that, you can petition every year, and you can see you show that you've mitigating factors to show how you've been reformed and rehabilitated. And in all in an ideal world, they'll take that into consideration and they'll say this individual is a remarkable citizen, is no longer needed to be on this or on that level, and will depart. I have yet to see it personally. You know, I'm sure there's somebody that actually did get a downward departure. I just haven't met him yet or her yet. So. In states like California, there are ways to get off the registry. It's very difficult, and it's not widespread, and yeah. you need representation and money to file. But there are some states where there is a path off, but it's pretty nightmarish. Yeah. Um, to the next question here. Uh, what is the strategy for advocacy around challenging registry laws look like? And do activists have a cohesive plan, narrative, movement? Let's tell us a little bit about the work that's happening. Well, Bill Dobbs is in the audience, who is a very is active in this area and critical of <laughs> its incoherence. Um, everyone, um, pretty much everyone who uh, is active against uh, the sex offender registry. First of all, most of the people who are active against the registry are people who are on the registry and their families. So there are a number, there are all over the country there are grassroots organizations that really mostly function as support groups. That's there, and they from time to time they'll sometimes they'll go and lobby. Uh, they'll have demonstrations from time to time. Um, there are more and more, I think, defense attorneys, uh, legal aid, uh, who, and even some parole officers, you know, who have seen the effects of the registry and the ineffectiveness of the registry, and so are doing some work against it. Um, you know the. I, in my own opinion, the real, the best way that we could do this would be to um, persuade people in the criminal legal uh, reform and abolition movement to embrace people who are also on, on the registry or um, who have uh, sex offenses. Um, because as long as they keep on you know, excluding those people, uh, not only will the registry continue, but also, um, the things that they do to sex offenders often eventually get done to other people who have felony convictions. So um, restrictions, registries, there are registries for other things, for animal abuse, for drunk driving, um, methamphetamine. so methamphetamine. So, um, so yes, there, it's, a, it's a loose grassroots organization. It's mostly reformist, that is, uh, let's, tweak this and tweak that. Um, the abolitionist position is that we have to get rid of the whole thing, that it's really not reformable because it is just rotten to the core. So um, yeah, so mostly people who are trying to be active are so limited because they can't go on the, they can't have a phone and they can't go on the internet and they can't do anything that, you know, activism requires now. So yeah. it's a really tough, uh, it's tough and it's tough to get anybody to care about it because everyone hates these people. Right, yeah. 
even even people who write about it like face so much pushback from colleagues and yeah. other people. So if you're directly impacted, if you're on the registry, you're not going to feel comfortable advocating for yourself because you're supposed to be hidden away. And yeah. Um, I'll offer this question. If no one has an answer at this time, that's also just inviting that. <laughs> one of the complexities of the play for me was that none of the formerly incarcerated men seemed to have taken accountability for the harm they had perpetrated. What would need to happen for a restorative process to be successful in a context like that between Fred and Andy, where it was so frustrating because they were talking past each other? I'm curious in your restorative work at all, Judith, if you'd like I, to speak to this. I haven't done that much, but, but <laughs> I, I actually don't agree with that. I mean, I do think... Um, it's a catch-22 because if a person with a sex offense expresses remorse, uh, they're called a liar, you know, so, so the, the even there's no, and when Fred says, yes, I have thought about this a lot, yes, I do feel I really wronged you, Andy won't believe him, so, um, and people do sometimes apologize and they don't mean it. You know, that happens all the time, right? Um, so, um, and I also feel, I mean, you see in the end that Dee, uh, you know, hates himself. Um, and he's been encouraged to hate himself. Uh, so, and furthermore, you know, there are many things, there are things that are crimes that are not harmful, such as consensual sex between teenagers. And there are harms that are not criminal, such as not giving food to children and housing. So, um, you know, I do think the, rest the, the restorative practice, if, for those of you who don't know, is it's a group of different practices in which people who have done harm and people who have been harmed and their friends and communities are brought together in such a way with, in a, a facilitated uh, circumstance uh, with people who are trained um, to ask the question, what happened? What harm was done? Why was the harm done? And what can be done to repair the harm? It is centered around the person who has been harmed. It doesn't happen unless that person wants it to happen. Sometimes you have a surrogate, uh, the per because often the other person doesn't want to do it either. Um, it's not compulsory. Um, but it's often a very, very long process. Um, because it takes a long time for people to take accountability and it takes a long time for people to express the harm that they feel. Um, and then the group, anybody who's in that group, um, works with the people, the harm doer and the harmed person uh, to find a way that is acceptable to the harmed person to repair the harm. It could be money, it could be community service, uh, it could be a lot of things. Um, in fact, apology is considered kind of like, you know, a throwaway. It's not like, it's not over when you apologize. And then the, the next thing, and then the group keeps track of that person to make sure that they are actually doing what they're doing. They're not going to narc on them and send them back to prison. Um, but the group sort of takes um, accountability for that person, too, because the feeling is that the community um, has responsibility for all of us, the harm doers and the others. And so, and then finally, if it feels as if it has been repaired as much as it can be repaired, then the whole group signs off and the contract is, is, is finished. And it's finished, you know, the person, that's it. Um, so it's, uh, it's an imperfect practice. Uh, it doesn't always work. 
you know, it's very messy. A lot of people are not very good at it. Uh, and then there's another kind of thing called transformative justice. Transformative justice recognizes that it's not just about individuals, but harm is done, violence is done within a context, a political context, a community context. And so there's an effort to understand that and also to address those things to um, create communities in which violence is uh, not acceptable uh, and is much less likely to happen, and also in which there are networks of mutual aid so that people can feel safe. Um, not calling the police, but calling each other. So, so that's basically, um, you know, so as I said, it's not perfect, and not everybody's gonna, it's not gonna work for everybody, but. Did you wanna add, Willie? Yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, from being on the registry for 16 years and actually spending a lot of years in prison with individuals who had similar offenses, that, you know, individuals on a bridge, it's easy to get like, life is fluid, right? So why are we continually stuck, like the black guy was saying, something on 30 years? I mean, we gotta understand harm and being done. Um, what can we do about the harm? You know, maybe it take a year or two, whatever we need to do on an individual level to rectify our own harm and pain, shame, we have to put that work in, right? So, but at the end of the day, we don't wanna derail the train and just get stuck, you know, and, and he was stuck. So it's kind of hard to sympathize or empathize with a person 30 years later that's still like in a child state. Even though that's his own right to move at his own level of progression, but it, when you look at it from the outside, it's like, you just gotta move forward, you know? And I'm not saying it's easy in no way, you know? And that goes for the perpetrators as well as the victims. You know, there's very little sympathy that I've been extended, really. I mean, um, Emily's been doing a wonderful job. She always checks up on me from day one. Like, will you need anything or come here, do this? She's always just been resourceful. And there's not many people like that, but it's just like, man, we had more Emilys. I think we could do way, way more, you know? But, the world would be right, much better right. if there were more Emilys. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like, well, that's not the reality. You know what I mean? The reality is what the reality is. Um, there's going to be a lot of no's, you know? And I don't think people should be confronted with a Pollyannish version. So when a person is on the registry, you're doing a lot of time. You're doing a lot of therapy in prison. I mean, you have to do that almost every day for the almost the, however many years you got to do. Then when you come on parole, the minimum is usually like five years. You're doing therapy for another five years. So after a while, it's like, I'm therapeutic guy. You know, like, <laughs> I already know about the cognitive models, cognitive distortion, all the various clinicians and approaches. It's like, now what? You know, do we really need another class for another nine months? I really don't think so. You know what I mean? And so talking to individuals that have been on the registry, it kind of gets that, like, all right, we got a new group now? Yeah, I got a new group. Oh, here we go again. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that the groups aren't instrumental and therapeutic. But after a while, it's like, how much therapy is too much? You know what I mean? I think that's where a lot of individuals on the registry kind of get to that point. Like, you've been telling us what to do since we got convicted of the crime. Whether it's 30 years ago, you tell them, you got to do this program. You got to do this. You got to do this. When can an individual make their own choices and say, I don't really want to do that program. I've done 10 of them already. I got a good grasp of the therapeutic model. Uh, I want to skip that one. No, you have to do that because you're incorrigible and you're forever a deviant. So you're going to do it again. So it's that pushback that comes like kind of making me do, you're kind of like bullying me. You know, clinical bullying, we call it, you know? So nobody likes to be clinically bullied, you know what I mean? So I just think from that perspective, um, therapy is good, but everything runs its course. Eventually it gets to a point where like, I think enough is enough. Yeah, I'll also just add, you know, I, I spoke with um, a person named Lori Jo Reynolds who runs the Chicago 400 Alliance, which is uh, an anti-registry and registry advocacy uh, organization in Chicago, of course in Illinois where this play is set. And I, uh, Lori Jo shared so much information with me about the work that, that uh, Lori Jo's group is doing. And, and one of the things that also stood out is I asked this question about accountability. Like, what is accountability? 
And Lori Jo also turned back to me and said, you know, you're asking me if for folks who may have been homeless for 30 years because of the registry, like if they're able, and they're, the first question they're asked every single day is, but do you feel accountable? But do you feel accountable? Yeah, and they're yeah. like, I have been accountable for so much of my life and it's also hard when I don't have my basic needs met, my like fundamental needs met. And so Lori Jo was like, I do resist the questions, Yvonne, on some level. And I think that was an important learning lesson for me in my own uh, growth around this issue because it's important to understand as also R.J. McConney, who spoke on our previous panel, who does direct uh, restorative work between folks convicted of sex crimes and survivors, um, was also saying forgiveness, maybe, maybe that'll happen. That's what R.J. said. He was like, maybe forgiveness will happen. Maybe accountability will happen. But that's actually not the end goal, right? The end goal is, is whatever healing can happen in, a, uh, in an anti-carceral way where we are resisting punitive models and, and carceral models of punishing each other or clinical bullying as this term that you're using, uh, Willie, is. So it's not to undermine anyone's experience of trauma and harm. And it's also to center um, the fact that our carceral systems are causing tremendous harm, which is further perpetrating more harm. So I just wanted to add that piece from Lori Jo. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we're gonna close out here for a moment, but I'd like to turn to each of you with this question, you know, on, as we close out. Um, where can folks turn for additional resources on this work, if anywhere? course, each of your books, <laughs> Feminist <laughs> and the Sex books. Offender, Protecting Our Children. More information about both of their books is in your program. I mean, for resources to learn more about the harms of the registry. And or the work being done. I mean, I would just say, like, be really cynical when you watch the news and read the paper. And every single time, I noticed the other day, there was like a slow news day, and there was like five stories about... Um, you know, the, 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 the sex trafficking and, and children's child sexual abuse and rings and all this craziness, which is not the reality when we over punish people who are convicted of sex offenses to the point where it's, it's, it's obscene and terrible. And um, if you, yeah, I guess just Thank be you. mindful and be aware that this is crazy. It's crazy the way people that have been convicted of sex offenses are treated and viewed, and our whole cultures, our whole culture's understanding of this is completely unrealistic and irrational and hysterical. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's also a lot of if you want to find out more about restorative justice, just Google it because there is actually really a lot of information about it, and there are places where you can be trained and and participate in it. Um, so I would recommend that you do that. Um, there's a bunch of, there's some really good books uh, that have come out recently about feminist abolitionism, uh, which is a, a mixture of like caring about justice and the carceral system that we have, which is, I would just uh, add, is also a racist system. Uh, I also want to say that it, it does exactly, it's not malfunctioning, it's doing what it's supposed to do, which is to not to put too fine a point on it, but perpetuate white supremacy and capitalism and the rest of it. Um, because even though, like, we, if you watch Law and Order, the sex offender is always white, there's a, a disproportionate number of people of color on the, on the sex offender registry and in prison, of course. Um, so, uh, there's, so there's a book, uh, Angela Davis has just re recently, she's written a number of books about abolition feminism. There's a really wonderful woman named Mariam Kaba, M-A-R-I-A-M-E-K-A-B-A, -A -A, who's written a number of books, um, very uh, warmly written, aphoristic, easy to understand. Um, 
putting these things together around sexual harm and also state violence. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I would recommend those. And Emily's book, if you want to really know about the details of the registry and what it's like to be on it, Emily's books are really the <laughs> the books to read. So. Willie, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, so offer? I definitely would agree with Judith. She has great books as well. Um, <laughs> Emily has uh, Protecting Our Kids. Um, I was fortunate to read it. Really good book. She talks about how they changed the narrative, how Chester Molester, you know, was just like an individual case, became the pedophile, which is like indefinite. You know what I mean? So she's got some real good uh, cliches in there you know, that really resonate with the registry. Um, so me, personally, I just go wherever I'm like pretty much see it. If it's compatible with my time, I pop in. You know, like I'm the, I'm like the leper. You know, I'm there. You know, I have no shame. I get on the panels. You know, I'll go to the conferences. I go to the workshops, and I really enjoy them. I just think that we should have more um, opportunities and create a safe space for victims and perpetrators to both be able to have dialogue. You know, I've been on a lot of panels where it's just one or the other. You know, but I would like welcome the panel with both parties. You know, so we can like hear each other out in a, a safe space and really face the issues and hear everybody's truth. Like so as far as that, you know, I think that's really in when, what you're doing in your personal life, in your professional life, really just take the stance to do what's right. You know what's right. You know, a lot of times you're going to be front, confronted with pressure to go along because of your jobs. And I'm not saying lose your job. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, if you could work behind the scene and talk to your coworker, like, you know, this is kind of really off the radar right here. Is there anything we could do? Likely you're going to get the pushback. No, go along and get along. But if you could just make that whatever change you can make on your own individual level, I think that'd be far more beneficial than just a whole bunch of ceremonial, you know, this and that. You know, that's just from my own personal experience. And can I say one thing that Willie, that you did by like pushing it and pushing it and forcing CUNY to accept you right. and let you go there, even right. though they don't let you have all the privileges of a right. regular student, which right, right. you should sue them for because they. But <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but but now they've uh, convened a working group right. where they're going to develop a policy for allowing people right. who have prior sex offense convictions on campus. Right. Um, that's, so that's it's true. all because of Willie, so that's pretty awesome. And, and the assistance of countless people yeah. like you. So it's not right. Well, with that, we'll close for today. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Take care.